0: Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. You are the light of the world. The gospel lesson in Jesus' words calls us to be the light, to be a shining light on a hill, light in the darkness. But how we are to be the light of the world, or why we're to be the light of the world, depends on what it means to be the light of the world. And the beauty about this particular very simple gospel lesson today is because it strikes at the very, very heart of our salvation, of the good news, the Evangelion. That we all make New Year's resolutions is evidence that people everywhere generally agree that something is wrong with us and needs to be improved. We don't agree on much in this world as Glenn was teaching us before in the adult forum class. But one of the things that we all do agree is that there is something wrong with us. But how wrong is wrong? The medicine prescribed is directly proportional to the illness. If you have a scrape and perhaps a band-aid, disorganized life, try a personal assistant or a secretary. If you have cancer, chemo. But if there's death, you need a mirror. When I was a seminarian in Wisconsin, I was stationed at, uh, for a summer as an intern for my CPE class at St. Camillus, which is a big, large complex. It's not just a hospital, but it's a retirement community. Um, it has Alzheimer's patients, which is where I was stationed. It has hospice care, the whole thing. And when I was there, I've told some of you this story, but when I was there, there was a particular man who um, was suffering with Alzheimer's who had a moment of lucidity. And he came out of it, and it turns out he, to- he told me that he himself was a doctor who worked for- on Alzheimer's patients back when he didn't suffer from it himself. And he said that I recognize that I now have this moment of lucidity, and that means that the end is near. And I'm about to die. And in front of everybody, I mean, in this whole big meeting area, this foyer area, with tons of people, there must have been 30, 40 people there, most of which were Alzheimer's patients, but this is also in front of doctors and nurses, and then myself. He knew I wasn't a priest, but he knew he had to get things off his conscience and clear his conscience. So he started making this very loud, in the way that I'm talking now, confession about everything he could remember from his lifetime, the sins he had committed, because he knew he was about to meet his maker. And of course, he did end up dying. I got a call that weekend that he was dead. And I got to thinking about his body. Because he died in his bed, they had to move him to the mortuary. And when they moved him, his lifeless, cold body, how dense it was, how difficult it was. He did not contribute to the moment. He did not help rearrange his weight when they had to pull him out and move him. That is the diagnosis that the scriptures give of humanity in Adam, the first man who fell, who commits trespasses and sins. To trespass means that we have stepped out of bounds. We we have stepped from light into darkness. The first one of us, first Adam, used his free, free will for the first time to step into darkness. And where we are in a place devoid of light, we cannot see to get back in. Some of you might know who M. Scott Peck is. He wrote a famous book back in the 60s called The People of the Lie. He was a psychologist who was overwhelmed with um, not only awe, but also fear. Because of the certain type of people and their psychological cases he had to deal with. He actually, by the end of the book, which is a collection of cases, he actually came from the position of atheism and strong materialism to a strong faith in Christ, when he realized that his social causation theories and his psychological theories alone could not explain how dark things just got for his patients. Similarly, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in his book, Gulag Archipelago, this famous Phrase, he says, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So, what's our state? Are we, by nature, mostly good or mostly evil? Some see church as a pick-me-up to begin with each week. The church says, you need more than that. You need a miracle. Without God, you are spiritually dead. Without the church, you are dead. For humanity is good, but it is broken. And that brokenness leads to spiritual death without the grace of God. By the grace of God and Christ's own death, he conquers death for us. And you he made alive, St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, when you were dead through the trespasses and sins, so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he puts into brackets, by grace you have been saved. That's not just a bracket, oh by the way, that's, this is a huge thing for you people. And raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This, the simplest form of the gospel message of christianity is this very thing right here you were dead but god came in and made you alive he entered into something a dead rotten corpse and made it alive again not a sick person not a person who needed to get their lives organized not somebody who needed a pep talk at the beginning of every single week a person who recognized that they were dead and now through christ they are made alive Jesus raised three people from the dead in the Bible before his resurrection. Prior to this, the funerals were seen as a time of intense grieving and mourning for the living and for giving respect to the deceased. In other instances, of course, they were to celebrate the life of the deceased, but these types of funerals in Judaism, prior to Christ, don't do anything in and of themselves. They are for the living, not for the dead. But after his resurrection, saving, of course, Our Lady and those who are alive at his second coming, all of us will experience physical deaths, but which are now to be seen as passageways into everlasting life jesus comes to every single one of us right now in this room and says about that type of funeral i'm shutting those down today catholic funerals are occasions to pray for the departed's journey into heaven so how does christ transform death into life it starts with how his divine nature deifies or sanctifies or transforms his human nature and how his humanity deifies common matter, material you as Catholics should be familiar with, such as water, bread, wine, our very words, our thoughts, olive oil for anointing, frankincense, which we would use if the church would allow us to do it. (laughs) And of course, all of us people ourselves. That's what it's all about. Jesus himself quoted Psalm, 20, or Psalm 82, where it says, You are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. The initiation, of course, into this is the baptism, which opens up for us this economy of grace or the sacramental life. It is our gateway into the kingdom of heaven. Paul again in Romans chapter 6 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism and death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Christ's death and Christ's resurrection now become our death and our resurrection. Our earthly life now becomes our heavenly birthday. The false teaching that's so prominent today among Christians, particularly in America, that baptism is merely obedience to a command given by Christ is not only unbiblical, you can only need to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, where it literally says, baptism now saves you, but it is also totally and spiritually bankrupt. It leads to a total denial of the very nature of our salvation itself. Anti- or non-sacramentalism is, according to Father Stephen Freeman, he put it so beautifully, the irony should be missed, he says it's a collapse of the world into an empty literalism of secularity. Anti- or non-sacramentalism is a collapse of the world into an empty literalism of secularity. Nothing is ever more than it seems. Thus, every spiritual reality, every mystery must be referred elsewhere. Generally, to the mind of God or to the mind of the believer, Christianity thus becomes a mere ideology. Faith, and not just faith in general, but faith in Jesus Christ and his church and the sacraments, is a vehicle to the deeper sacramental life. The sacramental life is a way of describing how the incarnation affects the entire world, starting from the interior life of the believer and reaching out literally to the very rocks on the ground and the water we drink. Our religion is more than just a collection of ideas that lead us to live a certain way. It is a church that makes us living members of the second person of God himself. We are transformed in our humanity to unite to God's humanity and thus to God's divinity. Paul again, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God not because of works, lest any man should boast. Our faith itself does not save us. Jesus saves us, and it, and faith is his hand reaching out to ours and allowing a sinful creature to be united to a holy creator. We are not saved by faith alone, nor are we saved by our own efforts, apart from God's grace. It's a both and. In this very simple context, concept is so convoluted and confused by so many people this salvation of God reaching his hand down to ours is God saying to all of us who may be Lazarus's in some way in our lives in this room today Jesus says not today grab my hand a city on a hill cannot be hid today's gospel says Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Being nourished by the sacraments regularly, we must go out and be lights to the world around us. Living in the light this way changes us. This is why we are called to be walking sacraments. I want to conclude by a story about, or with a story of a deacon who just passed away this past week. And the interesting thing about it is that this particular deacon, who I never got the pleasure to meet in this life, um, had quite a legacy before him. And I know about it through his son in law who told me about it. As Deacon Ken, who's, um, uh, who we pray for at this particular mass, um, started off as a deacon, he was quite the militant, aggressive, hardline Catholic. I mean, he knew the rules. He evangelized. He was the, the, a powerful preacher. I mean, he was just what you would think of as a dynamic deacon. But I'm told he had a rough edge. And his rough edge was not perhaps being as gracious or as pastoral as he later was. And it wasn't that you saw it and it was so evident in his life at that time when he was first ordained. It was because you saw clearly in his later years, right before his death just last week, how holy he became. And the story came up that there was a young woman who was involved inappropriately with another woman. And the story goes that um, she, even though being raised as a Catholic and knew better, was still wanting to do this. Because she, like so many others, associated her particular uh, attractions with her identity. And she expected the same. Association from everybody else because that's again what our media tells us again and again and again. And the man who told me this story was afraid of hurting this girl because she invited him to go to their wedding because she knew that if he went, he would be showing support for a behavior he didn't approve of. And that she knew, of course, that he did not approve of. But one of the things that struck me, and he asked for my advice. What should I do in this situation? My advice was what the old deacon Ken would have said, which was, don't go because you don't want to be seen as approving of this immoral behavior. But the new deacon Ken had a different take. And as soon as I heard it, my first instinct was to revolt and say, no, that's not right. But as I began to think about it, immediately I began to think, this guy's right. And this guy knows because he is on death's door. He knows that he is about to have his heavenly birthday and meet his maker. And his advice was for the, for the man to make his announcement to the girl and say, you know where your mother and I stand on this issue. You know we can't, don't support you in this. But we also want you to know that we love you very much. And if it communicates to you how much we love you very much, we will be in attendance at this ceremony, that which we don't agree with, because we love you, not because we love what you're doing. And that is, to me, the wisdom of the prodigal son, which our Lord teaches. Remember when the prodigal son demands his money, what he's owed by his father. Of course, not really, but that's just the tradition. The father didn't have to give it to him he demanded what he was owed by his father. The father fully knew that the son was going to go squander it on bad living and destructive behavior. But he went ahead and gave it to him anyway. Why? Because the son would have gone out and found destructive ways to commit these things anyway, with or without the money. But the father wanted to communicate to the son that he was loved no matter what he, what he did. Because of who he was, not what he did. And the sure in the story, remember the son goes out and squanders it, hits rock bottom. And when he finally hits rock bottom, when he's not even making money anymore, he can barely survive even being a, you know, working in the pig, working with the pigs and having to eat the slop of the pigs. He realizes I can't go anywhere else. But where can I go? I can go back to my father. And he does. And he thinks, well, maybe my father will take me back as a hired hand or a servant or something. And, of course, the story is that the father doesn't do that. The father welcomes him back as his son, puts a ring on his finger, throws a big feast for him, and forgives him and all is well. And that is the same kind of charity, the same spirit of love, where Deacon Ken steps in and says, here's my advice in this situation. It may be a little unorthodox. It may be not the old Deacon Ken's rigidity but this is what Jesus would want, because he wants that girl to know that the Father loves her. In this past week, Monsignor Steenson went to Kansas City to establish a new ordinary community of about 20 people. And the... uh, the unusualness of it all caught the uh, the Archdiocese of Kansas City, I guess it's Archdiocese of Kansas City's uh, newspaper, and they went to interview him. And without being so rude and without saying it so much, the woman the interviewing him seems to ask him, why bother with just 20 people? Why come all the way out here, why erect a community, canonically, for just 20 people? Doesn't that seem a little absurd? And Monsignor Steenson's reply to her was really in the form of an address to that community and their formation, where he exhorts, them, he exhorts them to fly under the flag of evangelism, is how he put it. He said, we need to bring people to Christ. And if we can invert it, we might say that we need to bring Christ to people. This is the light of the gospel." This is the salvation that the Catholic Church brings to us and shapes us in so that we can bring this to the world. This is what the essence of the gospel is today about being the light in the darkness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.